So, hey, it is New Year's Eve, and I'm sure you're excited. Anybody have a lot of plans for this evening? Is anybody going to go to Times Square? <laughs> that's a little piece of hell there. Uh, that's in my mind. That's a, uh, I ain't going there. Never been, never have been. But they actually say people pay like $24,000, $90,000 to rent rooms in the various places around Times Square so they don't have to stand there all day. I would never, you'd never catch me doing that. And some people stand there for over 24 hours just waiting to be there for the ball to drop. I personally have never, I haven't, well, I haven't seen the, the draw, the ball drop probably in 10 years, I gotta say. My wife will usually wake me up like when they start the countdown and before the countdown's over, I'm back to sleep and I don't get to see the ball drop. How many of you stay awake for the ball drop? That's a, that's a pretty good number, that's a pretty good number. But since when everybody asks me if I've seen the ball drop on New Year's Eve, I can always have to say no. I'm gonna ask you to play along. All right, I'm gonna count down from five and I'm gonna drop said ball. And we're just gonna say Happy New Year's, all right? You with me? Five, four, three, two, one. Happy New Year! Wow, wow, wow. Now I can tell your parents I saw the ball drop on New Year's Eve. There you go. That's oh, a wonderful thing. But here we are. We're at the end of the year, and a lot of sermons at the end of the year will be based on New Year's resolutions. And that's not bad. I did one last year here at Faith Community. It's good to, to rededicate things to the Lord that we may have let lie fallow over the year. But today we're going to wrap up our study in Philippians chapter 4 because it's a perfect ending for our new beginning. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, if you don't know, deals a lot with anxiety, and we're going to dig into that this morning. I don't have overheads for you, so I will be preaching from the NASB. If you have an electronic device and you want to select a proper version, I will be preaching from the NASB version this morning. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 and following. We'll try to get through most of it today. There's a lot of anxiety in the world. As we approach the end of 2023 and look towards 2024, I know many of us, of us in this room as Christians, we keep saying to ourselves, how much longer can it be until the Lord returns? What else has to take place before the rapture of the church occurs? We have war in Europe that we are very much involved in. We have tragedies going on in Israel with the hostage situation and the, the Hamas situation. We have Iran shooting missiles at the United States fleets in, in the Red Sea. We have open borders and we, 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 have the, we are lacking the capacity to take care of all the people that we're letting through. Cities are starting to collapse financially. President Biden wanted to have a digital currency in place before the end of this year and, and thank the Lord that he was not able to achieve that goal. But what more do we need as we, as we consider the, the things that are going on, as we look at the signs of the times and we become anxious about the things we see around us? Is that the proper response to become anxious about these things? The answer is no. But I, I, I want to show us in Philippians chapter 4 how we need to approach 2024, not with a heart of anxiety, but with a heart of joy and a foundation of Christ that is unshakable and that should cause no one here to spend a sleepless night worrying about what's going on in the world because our God is in control. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ. You thank you for sending your son into this world to die for our sins, to shed his blood on that cross, and to give us robes of white, robes of righteousness, because it's only by his shed blood that any one of us can stand before you. We thank you and praise you that we have been saved from hell and we've been prepared for an eternity in your presence to dwell with you and to have your face smile upon us forever and ever and ever. In the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ, I pray, amen. Philippians chapter one. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Now this is important. This is an important opening of Philippians chapter four. Whenever you see the word therefore, I know you've heard this many, many times, you have to see what it's there for. Why did Paul start this chapter with the word therefore? You have to go back and say he's basing this argument off of something that just came prior. And indeed he is. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord. All right, let's go back and see how we're supposed to stand firm in the Lord or why. So we turn back to Philippians chapter 3 verse 20. And we read these words that the therefore is based on. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. This is what we're supposed to stand firm in, church that we are citizens of heaven and that has been done for us and to us by the same exertion of power through which Jesus created the world. The same exertion of power that brought him out of that tomb and resurrected him on the third day, that same power has made you and I children of the living God, has made you and I citizens of heaven. It is positional truth that is absolutely something that we have to take hold of if we are to stand firm in the Lord in this world without anxiety. Paul says in verse 1 here, O Philippians, how I long to see you. You are my joy and you are my crown. I love the fact that Paul, he not only gets hope and strength from the fact that he is a citizen of heaven. But he gets joy and strength from the people of God who he has poured his life into. You Philippians who are doing the will of God, who are preaching the gospel, who are joyously working together for the cause of Christ, you are bringing to me joy. You are my crown. You are, you are something I put on a high place. I love the fact that you know what life is all about. It's about Christ, him resurrected, preached to the world. It's about sharing the good news and doing it joyfully. And Paul says, you are my crown. But something switches here in verse two. Paul, after saying how pleased he is with the Philippians, brings up an incident that was going on in Philippi. As we read here in verse two, I urge you, Eodia, and I urge you, Syntyche, to live in harmony in the Lord. 
Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul says, I'm thrilled with you, Philippi, but there's one problem I have. There's two ladies who are fighting. Now, Paul records this in Scripture because this almost never happens. Uh, yeah, well, okay, it happens occasionally that two women may fight. But he says here, my joy is being disrupted, Church of Philippi, because these two ladies, and it could be two men, it, it's beside the point, these two people are fighting about something that has absolutely no significance when compared to the mission of the gospel that I just spent three chapters of this letter telling you about. It pales in comparison to the fact that you are children of God, and for children of God to be bickering with one another about the comfort level of the chairs, or the color of the carpet, or about what you did or didn't do at dinner last night is absolutely shameful to me. But he says something else. He says, those of you at Philippi, come alongside these two ladies and try to help them reconcile, try to help them see that they're not here to bicker. They're not here to feel stepped upon. They're not here to say, well, I do everything, you do nothing, blah, 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 blah. You are here for Christ. Somebody come along and remind them of that. Let's get the unity factor going again here in Philippi because I don't like what people are seeing in this disruptive relationship. It does not hold the gospel to a good light to the world. And I want it to stop. But I want you to come alongside and I want you to gently restore these two ladies and let them see that they are citizens of heaven, not citizens of this world where bickering and gossip and backstabbing and ungratefulness are commonplace. In the world, I would expect these fights. But among the children of God, we got to let these things go because we are children of God. Verse 4, Paul goes on, and I love his repetition here in verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. When, Paul? Sometimes, when I'm feeling good, when I got a good paycheck, when my belly's full, no, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Anxiety. We start to get into how we combat anxiety. We're going to get a little deeper into it in a minute, but Paul here says, Look, there's a little commotion going on, but all in all, I want you to rejoice always at all times. I want you to get back to the firm foundation upon which you are standing, being citizens of heaven, being children of God. I want to get back to that, and I rejoice, and I want you to rejoice, and I say again, says Paul, rejoice, remind yourself that there's joy in God. Remind yourself that there's joy in salvation. Remind yourself that there's joy in Christ. And let all of the other things fade away. Rejoice in the Lord. Always. But I don't feel like rejoicing in the Lord today. Always. I lost my job yesterday. Always rejoice in the Lord. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Why does he throw that in there? 
Because somebody who trusts in the Lord, church, has a gentle spirit. You can't ruffle my feathers if I trust in the Lord. You can't start me fighting over the color of the carpet if I trust in the Lord. You can't do it. You can't rile me up if I trust in the Lord. You can't make me want to punch you in the nose if I trust in the Lord. That's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. We all lose it sometimes. We all lose it sometimes. You ever been married? Enough said. Not me. But if you believe in the Lord and you love him and you trust him and you know you're a citizen of heaven, you will rejoice and you will be gentle. You're not going to be a storm. You're not going to be a tempest. You're not going to be a tornado that comes into places and demands and bickers and fights and wants and isn't there to give and isn't there to bring joy and isn't there to be a calming force. Rejoice in the Lord. Always. Why? He says here, because the Lord is near. The Lord is near. So, little aside... So I mentioned all those things that are going on in the world. And we all say, the Lord must be near. Look what's happening with Israel. How can a people like the Jews be so hated? Generation after generation. And the Lord let that stand. The Lord brought them back into the land in 1948. Surely the Lord must come soon. Why is that people so persecuted? Even to this day, people hate the Jews, and look what's happening over there in the Middle East right now. The Lord's coming must be at the door. Do you ever feel that way? Well, so did Paul. Paul said, you should trust in the Lord and have a foundation in him and let your spirit be gentle. Why, Paul? Paul says, because in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, because the Lord is near. But didn't Paul die and not get raptured by the Lord or see his second coming? James chapter 5, the brother of Jesus, in James chapter 5, verse 7, James says this, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is near, says the brother of Jesus. Peter says this in 1 Peter 4, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. So be fast about it, church. Be about loving one another. Be about peace. Be about spreading the gospel. Be about joy. Be about all these wonderful things. Why? Because the Lord is near. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, let us hold fast the confessions of our hope without wavering for he whose promised is faithful and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. All the more you see as you see the day drawing near. What day? The day of Christ's return for his church. As, the, as you see that drawing near, and I, I have to say this, it says do not forsake the gathering together of one another, and the exact opposite is happening in the last days. Everybody, not everybody, because you're here, I'm here, 
So many people are now online church goers. They don't step foot out the door to enter into a body where they can be the leg, the arm, the foot, the hand, the mouth. They watch it all by TV or by internet or by computer. And that's okay to supplement what you do here. But Paul says, do not forsake the gathering together of one another, especially when the Lord is near. John in 1 John chapter 2 says, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know it is the last hour. 1 Thessalonians. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we always be with the Lord. In Thessalonica, let me remind you that they thought the coming of the Lord for the church had already happened. They were worried, and they wrote to Paul and said, has it already happened? And Paul said, no, it hasn't happened yet. If that were to have happened, you would have seen the dead rise first, and then we would have been caught up. Paul expected fully for the Lord to catch him up in his lifetime. But John, it never happened. It didn't happen to John. It didn't happen to Peter. It didn't happen to Paul. It didn't happen to James. But they all told us the Lord is near. Why? What's wrong? Is this a contradiction in Scripture? No, They knew what Jesus said. Who knows the day or the hour when Christ will return? No man. No one knows the day nor the hour. Then why do they keep saying that the Lord's return is near? Because they thought that it was. And they lived life like it was. That's the more important point. It's called the doctrine of imminency if you go to Bible college. That Christ could return at any moment. Nothing has to happen before he takes the church, you and I, out of this world. Nothing has to happen. The Antichrist doesn't have to appear. The covenant with Israel doesn't have to be made. Armageddon doesn't have to occur. Nothing has to occur before Christ comes for his people. And we have to live as though it could happen right now in the twinkling of an eye. Do you live like that? Do I live like that? Or am I bickering, grumbling, complaining. What am I doing? And I have to tell you, church, I love end time studies. I love them. I'm absorbed by them. I was saved partially by Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth. The Lord used that to convince me to look at what was going on in the world. But I have to tell you, why don't we stand up here every Sunday and preach about the end times? because that's not what the Lord has commanded us to do. Paul very infrequently talks about the end times. He'll throw in, the Lord is near. Who talks about the end times a lot? John in his last book. But the majority of the New Testament, even though they all believed the Lord was near, they were not writing books about the end times. They were not writing bestsellers about the end times. And there's nothing wrong with reading those things. But if they make you anxious, And if you are worried, and if you are frightened by what is to come, you should stay away from those things. But do not expect us to be preaching up here about the end times every Sunday, but we want you to be about the work of the Lord until he comes. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? That's what we're supposed to do. Not one of us should fear the coming of the Lord, but what should we do, church? Be ready. What if he was to come today? What if the Lord Jesus Christ was to come this very day? Would you be ready? 
Would you be happy to stand before him? Would you say, yes, Lord, here I am, your good and faithful servant, been making disciples, been tithing, been doing good things, been taking care of my family, been loving my wife, been loving my husband, raising my children in a godly way? Yeah, I'm ready. Come on back. Take me now. Oh, that we could all say that. Oh, that we could all say that. But that's why they told them, because they truly believed at any moment the Lord would return. But Paul goes on. Hey, the world can be an anxious place, right? A lot of things going on. A lot of things related to the end times that can concern you. Paul goes on in verse 6. Be anxious for what, Paul? The end of the world? World war? Genocide? Politics? Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I got to back up and give you a definition of anxiety, which is not a comprehensive definition, but it is one. How many of you have ever experienced anxiety? Put your hand up for me. All right, liar, liar, liar. Okay, so we've all experienced anxiety, whether you put your hand up or not. We have been anxious. When I first handed the keys to that handsome young gentleman over there when he was 16 of his first car, anxiety reigned in the Desiderio household. God reigned, but so did anxiety to some degree, right? I was worried. I was concerned because anxiety is somewhat of a natural emotion for a person to have, right? But we're talking about anxiety that really controls you. And here's a good definition that I found from a pastor, Corey Brock. Anxiety is a restless, sometimes body-numbing fear of hypothetical loss, hypothetical loss, and is, according to Jesus, an issue of desiring over-control of our circumstances, of loving the things of this world, including our self-image, more than we ought and of failing to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I think that's a pretty solid definition. Now, we are not talking about chemical imbalances of the brain. Please, I'm not, I'm not throwing stones at anybody who may be dealing with behavioral issues related to chemistry of the brain. But when we let anxiety control us, it is a restlessness, it's numbing, it's a fear, it's a loss, and often it says it's hypothetical. How much time do you stress, spend stressing about something that's days away? Days away and you spend so much time stressing about it, stressing about it, stressing about it. And all that stress doesn't change the outcome of what has to occur that day or about that issue. How are we supposed to handle this anxiousness? But it also says it's loving the things of this world and loving our self-image more than we ought. We had a beautiful young girl up here this morning, didn't we? Singing Jalen. That's a hard name for me to remember. But I will always remember her bravery. She came up here. Do you think Jalen was anxious? Uh Uh-huh. Amen squared. Jalen was anxious. But you know what? She overcame her fear by strength. She overcame her fear by saying, I am not going to let 
this fear control me to the point where I don't serve my God. And she got up here, two services, and served her God and overcame her anxiety by saying, I'm strong enough in the Lord to accomplish this. And that's, that's, that's very important. But what's, what's the fear of, of, of uh, speaking, public speaking? One of the greatest fears is public speaking. I have a fear of public speaking. I woke up at 4.30 this morning horrified that I had to public speak today. What are they going to think of me? Will they laugh at me? Will they laugh at how I'm dressed? Will they laugh at how I talk? Will the things I say, will half of them fall asleep and not even care about what I'm saying? Will they say, oh man, Rosetti's not preaching today? Get that one a lot. (laughs) It's all right. I love him too. (laughs) But sometimes it's our fear of our self-image that causes us to not do what the Lord wants us to do. Anyway, prayer and supplication. How do we overcome this anxiety? Be anxious for nothing. Here Paul tells us, but in everything, give it to the Lord. What does that mean? Pray to him. You know, you know why we don't pray so much, church? It's because we don't believe he's powerful enough to help us. Or we don't believe he cares enough. Well, you, you, you tell me. I, I'm not, you tell me why don't, you don't pray more. Why don't you put things at the feet of the Lord more? Yeah, when there's emergencies, of course we all do. But why isn't he the first you cling to in the morning and say, Lord, here I am. Help me through another day. Take away my fears. Whatever may come, may come. But you are my God and I am your child. I'm a citizen of heaven. Prayer, acknowledging that God exists. Supplication. What is supplication? It's entreating someone that is powerful to grant you favor. And I have to tell you, church, we, there is no one, and I don't mean this insultingly, there is no thing even more powerful than our holy God. And we have the privilege to enter into his throne and pray to him and to supplicate ourselves to him and to say, most powerful God, controller of the universe, here is a need I have. I can't handle it. It's too much for me. I'm giving it to you. Bear my burden. Prayer, supplication, acknowledging that he is the power, I'm not, and being thankful at all times. Yeah, things are hard, but I'm thankful for my salvation. Yeah, things are hard, but I'm thankful that I have a healthy child. Yes, things are hard, and I've lost someone I love, but I'm thankful for my husband. I'm thankful for my wife. I'm thankful most of all for my salvation. A thankful heart reduces anxiety tremendously. A thankful heart. I'm I'm thankful that I can get up here and sing a song for the church this morning. I do it with a thankful heart. They might laugh at me. They might say, oh, she's too young. They might say something negative, but I don't care. I'm going to make a joyful noise for him, and he will receive it as my God. And I'll be thankful for the opportunity. And here's the deal with anxiety. And I know a lot of you struggle with it more than others. But it's not overcoming the fear as much as it is learning to rely upon God to help you through the fear. Does that make sense? My fear of public speaking will never go away. But my further reliance on God to overcome that fear, to do it, is where I have to lean. 
Her, her fear of singing may never go away, but she had to rely on the strength of the Lord to overcome the fear, to allow her to do the thing that caused the anxiety. It's how it's got to work because we will always have something that we fear. Jesus said this, church, in Matthew 6, 25. Don't be anxious, right? How can I not be anxious? For this reason I say to you, said Jesus, do not be anxious about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried or being anxious, can add a single hair or an hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe the lilies of the field and how they grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. Don't worry then, saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Think about what you're worried about sitting here right now. Is it something that's going to occur today? Probably not. Something you're worried about right now that's causing you a great deal of anxiety is probably a relational issue, believe it or not. Probably something to do with a relationship. Maybe not. Maybe it's another issue. But it's probably nothing that you're going to be able to solve today. Why worry about it? Why worry about it today, tomorrow, the next day? What will that change what will that change? And Jesus said, don't worry so much about the things of this world, clothing, cars, houses, ships, boats, clothes, makeup, everything, everything, all that stuff. Don't worry about that stuff. If I clothe the lilies of the field, I will make sure you have clothing. But there's going to be a contradiction coming down the pike in just a minute, so I'm going to ask you to stay awake a little longer. Finally, brethren... Paul says in Philippians 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 8. Whatever is true, Paul says, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things, the things you have learned and received and have heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. What's Paul saying here? You know what Paul's saying here, church, is the battle of Christianity is in your mind. The battle of this life is in your mind, how you think. Are you a pessimist? Are you always the rain cloud that comes into the room? Grumble, 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 grumble. Everything's bad. Everything's horrible. He did this. She did that. I can't afford this. I can't afford that. I don't like this color. I don't like that picture. Grumble, 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 grumble. Or, or are you the type of person who takes hold of the word of God Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, 
whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. A believer whose foundation is Christ dwells on the lovely more than the ugly. Dwells on the lovely more than the ugly. It's always a balancing act. Our sinful nature always wants us to dwell on the ugly, but the nature of Christ in us wants us to dwell on the lovely. It's a battle of the mind. Paul says to put on the mind of Christ. Think like he thought. What do you mean think like he thought? Somebody slaps you on the left cheek, what do you do? Offer them the right. Offer them the right, no, the right cheek. All right? None of that New Living Translation stuff you're sliding in on me. All right? All right, here's where we conclude. Here's where we conclude. And I'll tell you what the little contradiction is. It's no contradiction at all. Verse 10. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but you lacked opportunity to help me. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content. Listen to this, church. Listen to these words. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering a need. What's the secret? What's the secret? He just said he knows the secret. What is it? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the secret that Paul wants you to know this very morning. So sometimes we take that verse out of context. Yeah, buddy, you can be the best baseball player in the world. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Yeah, sure, that's true. That's, but what is Paul talking about here? He's saying, when I have a need, when I'm in prison, when I'm being beaten, when I'm being stoned, when I'm in three shipwrecks, I can do all those things because he strengthens me, because he's my God. So when I know when those things come my way, they're brought to me by my God. So I can bear them. I can... Let's remind ourselves about Paul's bearing up. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, and in danger in the country. The same man who wrote that wrote, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul's not blind. He's not stupid. So what did Jesus mean? Isn't there a contradiction? Jesus said, don't worry about what you wear. I'll provide clothes for you. Don't worry about your food. I will provide food for you. Brother Paul just said, I've gone without clothing. I've gone without food. I've had hunger pains. What's, 
What's the conflict there, church? There is no conflict. God might not provide you with the finest of suits in this journey in life, but he will always be there for you. He will be there ahead of you, he will be there beside you, and he will be there behind you. So what Jesus was saying was don't worry about anything materialistic in this world. You be about my business, and whether you're hungry or full, I am with you, and let that be your strength and your comfort. So I told you earlier, I can do all things through Christ. I told you earlier that I have anxiety sometimes. And I gave an example of my son, both of them when they started driving. I was anxious. To this day, when, when one of them are out till late in the evening doing godly things, I'm sure, I worry, I worry. And I say, hey, couldn't you text me and let me know, you know that you're on your way home or whatever? And I know that God loves me so much that if I pray to keep my son safe, he will keep him safe. It's not true. It's not true. Here's the thing. If my son was to be taken from this world tomorrow, I have to be content with that. That's the painful truth of the Christian life. God did not promise me everything good from his perspective, yes. But from my perspective, no. People will die, people will get sick, and they won't get better sometimes. But I will find my strength in the Lord that this is the world that we have created, that he is restoring, that he is regenerating, that he has provided a way for our salvation out of. But right now, I will be content in him, no matter what may come my way, because he is my strength and he is my firm foundation. I can bear, I can cope with, I can be content in any situation through Christ. And church, that, that, easy, that easy Christianity that we want to live in, where everything is perfect, and the first time something goes south, we want to throw out Jesus Christ, we want to throw him out because something went bad, remember you will suffer in this world. You, everyone in this room, if we're not raptured, will die in this world. You will hurt for someone who dies in this world. And I'm not trying to pull on your heartstrings, but I'm telling you the truth, that this is what Paul was talking about. Jesus Christ will provide everything that he wants us to have in this world, not everything we want. And sometimes he will say, like he said to Paul, go to prison. Meet me there. Be hungry. Lose your job next week and be a witness for me in that situation. Be content with the loss of your loved one and be a witness to me in that situation. Because everybody's watching you, church. What kind of Christian are you? One who only wants to walk in the rose garden or one who knows that the Son of God was crucified. The Son of God was crucified. And he clung to the same promises as you and I do. So I leave you with this, this joyful 2024. It is joyful. We don't have to fear anything. Anxiety does not have to control us. 
We are citizens of heaven. We are loved by God. There is no power superior to God in this universe and he loves you. You can stand, face that fear, get out of that bed, get out of that house. You can move and breathe because like the lilies of the field, he's got you. He's got you. Like the birds of the air, he has got you. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for 2024. Bring it on. We are children of the most high God. Nothing fear, nothing to fear. Father, we rejoice and rest in you. You are our rock. You are our foundation. And Lord, help us to live for you. Yes, we know the end is near. Help us to live like we believe that like you could come tomorrow. Find us busy. Find us toiling for the work that you would have us do. And I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So church, you leave here today. Philippians, live for the gospel. Be unified in doing it. Be joyful in doing it. Life will have challenges. Be content in those challenges. That's the message of the book of Philippians. Go and be blessed in 2024.